0: In the following sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, recorded in the Westminster Chapel on the 29th of April, 1956, the doctor is speaking on the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, beginning at verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of men, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doing. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them, for the blood that they had shed upon the land, and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries. According to their way, And according to their doings, I judged them. And when they entered unto the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name when they said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. Now, we are considering during these Sunday evenings this uh, great message here that was given by God through the prophet Ezekiel to the children of Israel. The message starts here at verse 16, and it goes on right until the very end of the chapter. We are considering it, as I've been indicating on two previous Sunday evenings, because this is one of those great summaries of the entire biblical message. Let's be quite clear about this. There's only one message in the Bible. It's a long book written by different people in different centuries with great intervals of time between some books and others, and yet the astounding thing is there's only one message in it, and it is the message that comes from God to mankind. Here I say we have a very wonderful and perfect summary of that message. Here are the children of Israel in trouble. They're in captivity. When these words were addressed to them, they were not in the land of Canaan. They were not in Israel. They were not in the city of Jerusalem. They were sitting by the waters of Babylon. They were captives in a strange and in a foreign land. The enemy had come and had attacked them and had... uh, Overpowered them, smashed down the walls of the city and the great buildings in Jerusalem, and the people had been carried away captive thus into the land of the Chaldeans. And there they are, in misery and wretchedness and unhappiness. But God sends his word to the prophet. Moreover, he says, the word of the Lord came unto me saying. And you know, my friends, We wouldn't be in this building at this moment were it not that God is a God like that. God is a God who speaks to men. He speaks to us exactly where we are. And that is why there is such a thing as the Christian message. That is why there is such a thing as the Christian church. What is the Christian message? It's this. When the fullness of the times was come, God... Send forth his son. made of a woman. God speaking. God speaking in his son. As he spoke through his prophets. In the Old Testament. He has spoken in and through his son. This tremendous message. Now the point I'm emphasizing is this. That there is only one message. And it's always a whole message. It has various parts. But the parts are parts of a whole. And I've been trying to make it very clear on the two previous Sunday evenings that you cannot pick and choose in this message. You either take it all or you take none of it. Because, as I say, each part leads to the next and is indissolubly attached to the other. There is a wholeness in this message, so it doesn't matter where you find it. Whether you find it in the Old Testament or in the New, it's always the same message, exactly the same. The parallel is indeed quite astonishing. For those who attend here on Friday nights, let me put it like this. There on Friday evenings, we are engaged at the moment in the study of the second half of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Do you know this section in Ezekiel 36? Is an exact parallel to it. So much so that I almost found myself in difficulties. And I shall even have to ask those who attend here Friday nights to forgive me if they find that I'm going to say some things tonight that I was saying last Friday night. And other things which, God willing, I shall say next Friday night. I can't help it. I'm an expositor of scripture. And if Ezekiel in chapter 36 should say exactly the same things as Paul in Romans 1, well, I'm not responsible. But it does prove my point, doesn't it? That there's only one message. And it's the same thing. So I have to go on repeating it. Now then let's be clear about all that as a preliminary. One message, a whole, with distinct parts. And we must take them every one. Well, well last Sunday night we considered the first. We'd spend our first Sunday night in emphasizing the fact that it's the word of the Lord. That this isn't a human book. This is God's book. Holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Ezekiel didn't decide to speak. Didn't sit down and write an article. No, he was sitting down with the captives by the waters of Babylon. And the word of the Lord came to him. Took hold of him. And he had to speak it. As they'd all have to do the same. Very well Then the last Sunday night, I say, we came to the message itself. And what was the first thing we found? Well, it's quite obvious, it's uh, so natural, it's almost inevitable. The first question you ask people who are sitting by the waters of Babylon is this. What are you doing here? You ought to be in Jerusalem. You ought to be in the land of Israel. What are you doing in Babylon? What's brought you here? Now, they're made to face that. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ always starts with the doctrine of sin. And we saw very clearly last Sunday evening what sin is. Sin is that which makes a man make a fool of himself. When God gives him a perfect start, he doesn't appreciate it. Son of men, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it. Fools that they were. Brought into a land flowing with milk and honey. They didn't appreciate it and defiled it. That's why they're there. Ah, yes, but he didn't stop at that, you remember. He went on to show how deliberate their sin was and what sin was in the eyes of God. You remember this phrase, don't you? Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman sin is abhorrent to God. It's hateful. It's ugly and foul. It's insulting to him. It causes his enemies to rejoice. That's what sin is. And the first thing this modern world needs to learn and to understand is sin. It's the one thing they dislike, of course, they object to the whole doctrine, the term they try to ridicule, but whether they do or not, their whole condition at the moment is due to sin. And things wouldn't be like this were it not for sin. Very well, we've considered all that. But now we come on to the next step. And I'm taking them exactly as Ezekiel puts them, and exactly as the Apostle Paul puts them. The next thing is that God punishes sin. You notice how every one of these propositions is something that men don't believe. They don't like the idea of sin. They dislike the idea of punishment still more. And they do their utmost to get rid of it. But here it is. Listen to it. Verse 18. Wherefore. I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries. According to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. Now you remember that the apostle Paul puts that like this, don't you? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That hold down the truth in unrighteousness. What an exact repetition of what Ezekiel says here. Very well now then let's look at this together. And again let me remind you before I proceed that this statement is as much and as integral a part of the whole message, as was the previous message about sin, and as the future message will be about salvation. You can't pick and choose, I said, this is one great statement. You may be saying, Ah, I wish you wouldn't stop there. Why don't you come on and say something like this? Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake. And I will sanctify my great name. And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. And a new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. Why don't you come on to that? says someone. Why do you stay there? I do it for this reason. It's the same God who has spoken the two. I see no reason why I can believe this second part if I don't believe the first part. If this first part isn't the message of God, well, why should I think the second part is the message of God? I have no grounds for doing so. The same man is speaking. He says, this is what God has told me to say. Everything is the same. Is it a a sin? Is it a logical? Is it a reasonable procedure? Just to take out a, a part of a message which you happen to like and leave the other? On what grounds can you do that? What's your authority? What's your sanction? Of course, we know that that's what we all want to do. That's what we all try to do in life. If children had their way, there would be a perpetual school holiday. Never any lessons, never any discipline. Permanent holiday. And if we had our way with regard to the the food that nature provides for us so bountifully, there'd never be anything any better. Any better things for some people, no sweet things for others. But you you can't do that sort of thing. You take the bitter and the sweet. You can't get a a rose without thorns. These things are one, and they've been made one, and we can't divide and we can't separate. So I say, it is to me the height of folly, apart from anything else. So I don't like that, therefore I leave it alone. You either look at it all, or you look at none. Very well then, what is the teaching, what is the message? Let me start by putting it like this. First of all, there is the announcement of a fact. And the fact is that God hates him, God judges him, God punishes him. Now, I say that is a statement of fact. And when you're confronted by facts, surely, again, it is a somewhat foolish thing to start putting up your ideas and your theories as against the facts. Again, this is something, I think, of which we all must plead guilty. Because we don't like things, we try to explain them away, as if we hadn't seen them. The Bible's full of that sort of thing. We're all so foolish as the result of sin that we quite seriously try to turn facts into something else. It's because so many do that that they go wrong in life. Certain warning signs appear, but they explain them away. Businessmen have often done that. The accountant puts the facts before them. Oh, yes, that's, that's all right. This, uh, he's a natural pessimist. I don't pay too much attention to that. So there's this, that, and the other. Facts are... They try to explain the facts away. Same people have often done with health. Warnings are ignored. Certain signs. No, no. They're, they're, they're not interested. They don't want to face facts. And they persuade themselves that a fact isn't a fact. And that is precisely... What mankind does with this great biblical doctrine, which tells us that God hates sin, that God punishes sin. But I say it's a fact. And the best plan, therefore, for all of us, and the essence of wisdom in these matters is to recognize that there are so many things in the Scripture that we cannot understand. If you start judging this Scripture by your understanding, well, it's quite certain, before we go any further, that you will never know the salvation that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, you see, it isn't only a question of understanding the wrath of God. When you'll come on later and consider that God sent his only Son into the world... You'll be asked to believe this, that a man who was called Jesus of Nazareth and who was a carpenter was at one and the same time the everlasting and eternal Son of God, that he was truly man and truly God, that he had two natures in one person. The two natures were not mixed, but they were both there. Can you understand that? Well, if you're going to make understanding the standard, you have to reject it. So it's not merely a question of trying to understand the wrath of God. You've got to understand the incarnation and the virgin birth and the miracles and the atonement and the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost and all these things. And my dear friend, it can't be done. We are in a realm that takes us to the supernatural where God acts. You can't understand creation. Why, if we could understand God and his ways, you know it would mean this, that we were greater than God. If I, with my little mind, claim that I have a right to understand everything that is true about God and all that God does, I say it just comes to that, that I can put God, as it were, on the table, and my mind can encompass him, and I can understand everything. I've understood God. Now, to me, that's just nonsense. By definition, God is eternal. God is absolute. See, even the philosophers are prepared to tell you that they call him the absolute. Can the finite understand the absolute? Can that which is small understand the everlasting? It's impossible, I say. Well, now then, when you come to a great doctrine like this, which is in the Bible, about the wrath of God upon sin, I pour forth my fury, says Ezekiel speaking the words of God, when you come to that. Don't you think the obvious thing to do is to put your little theories on one side and to stop saying, but I can't understand this. I can't understand how you can say at one and the same time that God is a God of love and yet pours forth his fury. I can't reconcile. I know you can't. I'm not asking you to reconcile. But I am saying this to you. If you realize something of the being and the greatness of God, you'll even give up trying to understand and obeying the behest and the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will become as a little child, and you'll enter into the kingdom, and then you'll begin to understand. But not until then. Very well, then, I say, we are confronted by the facts. What do I mean by that? Well, this. It is something which is taught everywhere in the Bible. And if you take this doctrine out of the Bible, I wonder how much you've got left. Now, last Friday evening, I was giving some of the evidence. I'm not going to give it all this evening, but the Bible is full of this sort of thing. God told men when he made him and put him into the Garden of Eden, that there were certain things he mustn't do. And that if he did, dying, he would die. And he went on giving the same sort of message, spoke to Cain, spoke to the people before the flood, spoke to these children of Israel. The Bible's full of it. It's there in the teaching of our blessed Lord himself. You say to me, I can't understand how a God of love can pour forth his fury. But you know, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't seem to have any difficulty about it at all. Are you saying that you know more about the love of God than Jesus of Nazareth knew? He was the incarnation of the love of God. Yet did you notice that chapter we read at the beginning? Take chapter 24 of Matthew. Read it before this chapter 25. Go through your Gospels. Listen to him talking about the place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Listen to him saying... In his talk about Dives and Lazarus, about a great gulf fixed and how that rich man in hell can never pass to the place where the poor man is in Abram's bosom, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who said all that. Do we really seriously say we know more about God and his love than the very Son of God knew? How monstrous it is. The Bible's full of it. It's in all the epistles. Flee from the wrath to come, said the first apostles as they preached. The book of Revelation at the end of the Bible is just full of this great note of judgment. Seals being torn off, trumpets being sounded, vials being poured forth upon men because of their sin, and groaning and gnashing of teeth. This is, this is not my imagination. I'm simply quoting scripture to you. It's everywhere in the Bible. All I'm saying is this. If you believe anything in this book, why don't you believe that? On what rational grounds can you reject all this out of the Bible, expunge it out of the book, and still say you've got the word of God? Why is this any less the word of God than the other side, which I've already mentioned to you, It's illogical. It's not consistent. If you say you don't believe a word of the Bible, well, at any rate, I'll grant you you're logical. But you can't pick and choose. But not only is it everywhere in the teaching of the Bible, still more significant, as I want to emphasize tonight in view of this text in Ezekiel, still more significant is the history of the Bible. And this is of supreme importance. The Bible not only teaches this doctrine of God's hatred of sin and punishment of sin, it tells us that historically God has punished it. You see, we start with it. Back away there in Genesis again. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Ah, but wait a minute. Look at them. They're being driven out of it. And there I see at the eastern gate The cherubim and the flaming sword protecting the way back. Prohibiting them to come back. They've been thrown out because of their sin. You see the importance of that. The world is as it is tonight because man was thrown out of the Garden of Eden. We wouldn't have our problems and troubles. The world wouldn't be wretched and unhappy as it is, were it not for this great principle. I cannot understand history unless I believe in the wrath of God against sin. It's meaningless to me apart from it. And you notice the confusion at the present time. People who don't believe in this sort of doctrine generally believe in the doctrine, the theory of evolution. And of course they're utterly confused because the world history is denying their theory. Everything's supposed to be going up, but it's obviously going down. And facts and theories don't correspond. But if you believe the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God against sin, you shouldn't be a bit surprised that the world is tonight as it is. It's a confirmation of it. But wait a minute. Not only did it happen in Eden, it happened at the flood. God destroyed the world. Because of sin. But above all, and that's the thing Ezekiel reminds us of. If we had no other evidence than this, it would be, it seems to me, more than enough. The whole story of the children of Israel proves this once and for ever. And that is why, no doubt, the Holy Spirit led the early church, which had become mainly Gentile, to keep the Old Testament literature. There's such marvelous proof in the Old Testament of the doctrines of the New Testament. And this particular one is proved above all others. The children of Israel were God's people. It was he who formed them out of Abram. Then you remember they had to go down into Egypt because of the famine. And there arose there a ruler that knew not Joseph. And he began to punish them and to persecute them. And was doing his utmost to exterminate them. And they would have been exterminated were it not that God intervened and took them out. And put them back in the land. And he gave them this land flowing with milk and honey. But you remember that when he did so he made it perfectly plain and clear to them. That they've got to live in a certain way, because he said, if you don't, I shall throw you out of it. Let me give you the words. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, I'm reading out of Deuteronomy 4 when thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it, ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall be utterly destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. Now he told them that before he ever took them back into the land. And here we are reading Ezekiel 36. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it and I scattered them among the heathen and they were dispersed through the countries. The very thing that God had warned them about and told them that he would do, he actually did. It's a fact in the history of the children of Israel. How can anybody reject this doctrine? And you'll not only find it there in that fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, you'll find it in Leviticus 26 and in several other places. God addressed that nation and said, Listen, I'm putting you there, but if you don't live in the way I want you to, I'll throw you out of it. And he did throw them out of it. The Chaldeans came, as I've reminded you, and they took them, having destroyed their city, they took them away into captivity. My dear friends, we start with a great and a solemn and a mighty fact. And how can anyone reject it? Do you want a further one? Well, let me give it you. Do you remember what happened in A.D. 70? The Roman army, the Roman legionaries surrounded the city of Jerusalem again and destroyed it and sacked it. And that nation of Jews were taken and were again thrown out amongst the nation. It's a fact of history. The Jewish nation is a proof of the doctrine of God's hatred of sin and God's punishment of sin. It's not a question of theory, therefore, you see. It's a solemn fact of history as definitely a fact of history as any other fact of history. Very well, there's the fact. But let me ask a question. Why does God do this? And he gives us an answer here again. Oh, if I may so put it with reverence, God does this because he must. Because he's God. You know the trouble with all of us is. That we have no conception of God. We talk about God. Like Job of old we are ready to reason and to argue and to question. And to say this and that. But you remember what happened to Job when he rarely came into his presence and knew him. I have heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now. The first thing Job did when he came there was to put his hand upon his mouth. What do we know about God? We say, don't we, that he's from eternity to eternity. Do we know what we're saying? Have we any faint conception? Of the holiness of God. God is light. And in him. Is no darkness at all. You know we can't conceive of that can we. You see that's our whole trouble. That's why all our talk is so foolish. And so idle. How can we possibly express our opinions about God. When we don't know him. We can't conceive of this. The scripture says. Our God is a consuming fire. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall dwell in his holy place? God dwelleth in a light which is unapproachable. No man hath seen God at any time. No man can see God and live. That's what the scripture says. And you remember Moses on one occasion asked God, he said, let me see you. And then he said, I'll do this big job that you're putting into my hands. I'm afraid to go up without you, but let me see you. Manifest thy presence to me now. And what we are told that God did to Moses and said to him was this. He took him and put him in the cleft of a rock and he said, You can't see me, Moses. You shall see my back parts. If he'd looked into the face of God, he would have killed him. No man can see God and live. It's our ignorance of God, my dear friends, and our smallness, our finite sinful character that makes us question and query. I say, if we but had some feigned conception of the unutterable, ineffable glory and holiness and purity of God, we wouldn't argue about this. We'd see that it's impossible for God to tolerate sin in his presence at all. It can't happen. That is why Habakkuk was so right when he said, Thou art such, of such a pure countenance that thou canst not look upon sin there is no mean you see here there is no there is no concord no mixing between light and darkness and right and wrong god is eternally different from sin and he cannot tolerate it in his presence he must i say with reverence deal with it and we have already seen what it is in his sight offensive foul Oh, you and I know something about this in a small degree, but you must multiply what I'm going to say by infinity. We've known at times, haven't we, what it is to feel a sense of disgust at sin. Perhaps our own sin. We've said, how could I have done it? How could I have been such a cad? How could I have been so vile? Or we may have seen sin in somebody else. We may have looked at a poor man helpless under the influence of drink. Behaving like a beast and worse. And we have felt revolted at the ugliness and the foulness. We may have seen people doing things to animals which are foul and disgusting. And we have hated it all. I say multiply that by infinity and even then you don't begin to see and to know what sin is in the sight of God or how careful we should be as we speak and as we try with our little minds to understand these things. God is God and because he's God I say he must punish them. He's just, he's righteous he is holy. Very well, then, my next point is quite obvious, isn't it? Is there anything which can be more foolish than the way in which men in sin pit themselves against such a God? They do it with their minds. They do it in their actions. They say, I don't care what you say. After all, I'm living in 1956, you know, and I can't be frightened. All right, my friend. You are living in 1956. Will you tell me exactly what difference that makes to God? Has it lessened his holiness? Has it lessened his justice and his righteousness? As men doesn't change in sin, God doesn't change in holiness. And you know that men in 1956 are guilty of the same vile, foul, abominable things as men have always been. They are the same, and he is the same, and he looks upon it in the same way. Yet men in their ignorance and blindness and folly pit themselves against him. But we are in his hands. We are in his power. As much as the children of Israel where they left, you see, when the prophets came and warned them, they took no notice at all. Ah, oh, they said, it's all right. You've said that so many times before, you know, but nothing's happened. On they went. But at last they found themselves in Babylon. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we're all in his hands. You go wherever you like, you'll never get away from God. And God is all powerful and eternal as well as holy. Oh, the madness, the folly of sin. But come, let me lead to this. How is it that God does punish sin? This is the thing again which is emphasized by Ezekiel. Here it is. I poured my fury upon them for the blood which they had shed upon the land, and I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed among the countries according to their way and according to their doings I judged them. Now what does this mean? Well, can't you see that it's always a repetition of the thing I was saying just now? God always punishes sin by throwing people out. By throwing them out of his presence and by throwing them out of the place in which he's put them. God's method of punishing sin is always to throw men out of his presence and away from his blessings. Now, I've already given you the evidence. He did it with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He did it with these children of Israel when he sent them to Babylon. He did it in A.D. 70 when he threw the Jews out amongst the nations of the world where they remain in the mass and in the main until this very evening. You see, we've got 2,000 years of history behind us. The Jews were thrown out. Though they were God's own people, they were thrown out of their own great city among the nations. That's how he always does it. And that is how he is still doing it. What is it to be punished on account of sin? It's this. It's to be without Christ. It is to be without God. It is to be without hope. It is to be left... To yourself and people like yourself. And that's hell. That's how God punishes sin. Instead of being in Israel and in Jerusalem. Thrown over into Babylon. Cut off from all the blessing. And oh my dear friend. If I could but bring you to see. That you are what you are this evening. Because your sin is being punished, are you unhappy? Are you conscious of a great lack? What's it due to? Well, it's due to this, that you're cut off from the blessings of God. When man sins against God, God throws him out and withholds his blessings. And I say that's why the world is as it is this evening. The world is no longer paradise. Because man is estranged from God. Has cut himself off from the blessings of God. Look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a life. Wouldn't you like to be like that? Well you're not like that because of sin. And because God doesn't shower blessings on you as he did on him. We are told that the Holy Spirit was not given by measure unto him. It was poured upon him in all his fullness. But we are not like the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because we are cut off from the blessings of God. We've been thrown out of God's presence. We were meant to be in God's presence. We were originally in God's presence in Adam, but we've been thrown out. And we have to work by the sweat of our brow. And there are illness and diseases and briars and thorns and thistles and pestilences and all the things that go to make life so difficult. They've all come in as the punishment of sin. And this failure to find satisfaction, this constant disappointment, What things we take up and which have promised us so much, it's all a part of the punishment of sin. It's God still saying, there is no peace, hath my God, to the wicked. It's always that, you see. We are estranged from God. We are outside somewhere. We are not in contact with him. We are not in the garden. We are not in paradise. We are not in communication. His blessings are not coming to us. That's how he always punishes sin. And you know, my friends, that's how we always will punish them. It's like that I say now, but did you notice how Matthew 25 put it? Did you notice what was said about that second man with the one talent who said, I knew that thou art a hard man, so I buried your talent, and here it is back for you. Do you remember what we are told about him? This is the last word about that man. Cast ye the unprofitable servant unto outer darkness, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The final verdict upon that man is this, throw him out. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, is the message to the first two. Cast him out was the other. And there he is where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's spoken, let us remember, about the last judgment, about the coming back of Christ to judge the world in righteousness. And those who have not belonged to him will have that fate. But listen to the book of Revelation putting it in the last chapter of the Bible, verses 14 and 15. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates. Unto the city. That's the ultimate fate of Christians. Of those who believe in God and in Christ. And who've lived to please God. Not according to the world. But according to God's commandments. That's their position. Blessed are they that do His commandments. They have a right to the tree of life. And they may enter in through the gates into the city. Where Christ is the light. And there's no need of sun and so on. But listen to this. For without... Always without, you see, outside are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh lie. Without. Outside. I I can't imagine anything so terrible, so awful, as to spend eternity outside. Outside God. Outside the holy city. Outside the smile of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not belonging to the saints. Not belonging to people whom I knew here on earth. They're there. I'm outside with dogs and adulterers and harmongers and murderers and all were selfish and self-centered and vile and vicious, loving lies and speaking lies and hating truth, there they are, spending eternity outside the city in interminable wretchedness and misery and abomination. That's how God punishes sin. By throwing out. Out of Eden. Out of Canaan. Out of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Out of the eternal city. The heavenly Jerusalem. Out of the brightness of God's face. Without. Have you seen it? This isn't theory, I'm giving you history, I'm giving you facts, I'm giving you the word of God. My dear friend, you are seated now in Westminster Chapel, you know you're going to die and you're going on. And what's concerning me is this, that you may wake up one day and find yourself, as the children of Israel found themselves in Babylon, you will find yourself outside, without And then you'll frantically come and knock at the door. But the voice will say, I never knew you. Stay without. Nothing unclean or impure shall enter that city. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. But blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And what makes it so terrible is this. We've got no excuse. The warning has been given. The punishment is absolutely just. Did you notice how Ezekiel puts it? According to their sin, according to their behavior, so I have punished them. And that is what makes it so terrible, it seems to me, that there's not a word to be said You remember Davies in hell, doesn't try to plead anything at all. He can't excuse himself. The judgment of God is just. As you lived, so I have punished. God judges absolutely righteously. And when you come to see God as you will one day, you'll have nothing to say. Our Lord spoke a picture of such a man who had gone into the wedding feast without a wedding garment. And when the king said to him, friend, how camest thou in here without a wedding garment? We are told he was speechless. There's nothing to be said. God is always just and righteous. Even when he punishes the ungodly, they get exactly what he warned them about and what they deserve. Oh, but what breaks one's heart about it is this, that it's so unnecessary. You've no reason for complaining against this doctrine because this need never happen to you. For God comes to you in Christ at this moment and says, though you've sinned, though you've laughed at me, Though you've spurned my voice divine. Though you've spat upon my laws. Desecrated my sanctities. Polluted my land. Defaced my image that is upon you. Though you've lived like a beast and have been vile. Though you've done it all. I've made a way to forgive you. I've sent my son to die for you and those very sins. And if you but acknowledge it now and confess it to me and cast yourself before me, I assure you that I will blot out all your sins and the very record of them. I will clothe you with the righteousness of my only Son. And I will receive you into everlasting habitations. There is no need for this to happen to you. The way of escape is open. The way of reconciliation is offered. It's God himself who's made it. It's God himself who commends it to you. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you not only have no excuse in terms of the righteousness and the justice of God, If you try to speak, God needs only point you to his only Son, bearing the imprint of the nails
1: and the hole in the
0: side where the spear was thrust in. And there'll be nothing to say. Every eye shall see him, yea, and they that pierced him. There's no excuse. It needn't happen. Just face the holiness of God and yourself honestly fall before him. Acknowledge and confess it to all and ask him for mercy. And I assure you, he will receive you and he will tell you that Christ has borne your punishment and you are free. From this moment, you are reconciled to God if you believe it. You become a child of God. And you will have a right to enter in through the gates of that city and begin to partake of that tree of life that will feed you and fill you and ravish your heart through all eternity. Amen.